Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for February 1st, 2018. I'm very excited today because we're going to try something a little different for the podcast. Uh, Instead of listening to me go on and on for an hour or so, uh, you're going to get to hear somebody else talk. Uh, In a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by Jim Loeb. Jim is a long-time observer of and reporter on American foreign policy and neoconservatives in particular. Uh, He was the founding chief of the Washington Bureau of Interpress Service, which opened in 1980. Uh, He was one of the first journalists in the United States to draw connections between uh, the invasion of Iraq when it was being planned after 9-11 and uh, the neoconservative movement as it had manifested in the 1990s and things like the Project for the New American Century. Um, He has reported since then on the links between the neoconservative movement and other aspects of the right, other aspects of the American foreign policy community, uh, especially around Iraq and then Iran, the, the sort of push to get us uh, to, <laughs> to shift our focus for uh, a little further east and take on the Iranians. Uh, he's written um, multiple pieces about the neoconservative worldview, about neo- what neoconservatism is, uh, its development over time, over the 20th century. He's lectured on U.S. foreign policy and neoconservatism at many places um, here and abroad. He's uh, been featured not only at Interpress, but he's also been featured uh, at Alternet and Foreign Policy and Focus. He's appeared on the BBC. He's appeared on uh, the Australia Broadcasting Corporation programming. He's appeared on Al Jazeera English. Uh, he's, he's done a lot, and he's really uh, an expert on uh, neoconservatism and what it is and where it came from and how it's developed. And that's what we're going to talk to him about. Jim is also the founder of Low Blog. Uh, if you know anything about my work, then you've read it there, or you've seen me at least asking you to go read it there uh, and to check out the site more broadly. It's really a great place to get uh, very insightful and interesting uh, commentary on American foreign policy. Low Blog was the first blog to receive the Arthur Ross Award for Distinguished Reporting and Analysis of Foreign Affairs from the American Academy of Diplomacy in 2015. So it is, uh, you know, it's got some heavy credentials. Uh, it's got some great writers, and I'm not including myself in that. Uh, if you want to in- include me in that, you know, that's up to you. But I'm not going to include myself in that. Um, but Jim, you know, as I said, he founded the blog and he publishes my work so he can't be all bad right uh so yeah let's um let's welcome jim and go to the interview enjoy okay jim uh thank you for being my first ever guest on my podcast uh, i appreciate you doing this i'm deeply honored Derek. <laughs> so um i wanted to have you on because you know more about neoconservatism and neoconservatives than anybody else I know. And that's, I'm sure, a big topic of interest for uh, my listeners. Uh, So I thought you could uh, help people understand this movement uh, a little bit better. Um, 
I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure or anything. Um, so I thought we could start by talking about what your shorthand definition of neoconservatism is, and in particular, how you distinguish between neoconservatism and things that seem closely related, if not in sort of background, then an outcome, things like uh, liberal interventionism as practiced by somebody like Hillary Clinton, or things like, you know, more kind of hardcore conservative right-wing hawkishness, like a, like a John Bolton type. Um, how do you, you know, how do you define the movement and then how do you draw, where do you draw the lines between these things? Well, well, let's start with the first question. And I think I'm going to be leaning on uh, a talk I gave um, uh, a couple of years ago, although it's it's been through various iterations. So so we'll take on first, like, what what is a neoconservative? Uh, and then we can take on how it is distinguished to the extent that it is from other other tra uh, trends or, or worldviews like <clears throat> uh, liberal internationalism or interventionism more precisely, and then kind of hard right traditional um, U.S. Uh, thinking. Um, I, I, I think there are five basic elements to neoconservatism. By basic, I mean they're kind of essential. If If they're not present, then chances are we're not talking about a neoconservative, we're probably talking about another kind of animal. Um, and I would say that these five elements have been consistent over the past 50 years. And it was just about 50 years ago that neoconservatism, in a sense, began as a more or less self-conscious movement. The five elements I would uh, stress. Our first, a Manichaean view of the world in which good and evil are constantly at war, and the United States has an obligation to lead the forces for good around the globe. I think that's one elementary principle. A second is a belief in the moral exceptionalism of both the United States and Israel, and the absolute necessity on a moral level, if you will, for uh, the United States to defend Israel's security. By Israel, I'm, that means any way Israel dis defines it, just about. So, uh, particularly under a Likud government, it, Israel becomes defined rather broadly, and the U.S has an obligation to defend it. Um, a third, I think, essential element is a conviction that in order to keep evil at bay in this Manichaean world, the United States must have and be willing to exercise the military power sufficient to defeat any and all challenges um, virtually anywhere in the world, but particularly in the Middle East. And there's a corollary to this, 
which you've heard of uh, in other contexts as well, which is force is the only language that evil understands. Um, that's a phrase, again, that many uh, kind of uh, foreign policy or domestic policy types, especially on the right side of the spectrum, uh, believes in, but, but not necessarily restricted to the right side of the spectrum, uh, believes in uh, pretty fervently, um, and you hear it a lot. Uh, the fourth, or the rat, yeah, the fourth, I think, is uh, the importance in in their worldview of the 1930s. What with um, the idea of Munich, in which the Western European powers, particularly Britain and France, sold out Czechoslovakia to uh, the Nazis in Germany. Uh, so uh, in that way, Munich is a key word in their rhetoric. So is everything associated with Munich, including appeasement. If they talk about if you, someone talks about Chamberlain, there's a good chance that person may be a neoconservative, a Chamberlain being associated so closely with appeasement. And uh, they love Churchill. Winston Churchill is a great hero to neoconservatives, as he is to many other people, but particularly to them, particularly uh, Churchill's relevance to contemporary um, challenges. In their view, the 1930s taught us everything we need to know about evil in history and how to defeat it. Um, so that would be the fourth and the fifth, which I which say, I guess consequently makes everything the Nazis, right? I mean, it's kind of like if that's your your uh, lodestone or your your you know your, where your you start, line. then everybody's a Nazi. I mean, all the all the evil is Nazism. It's kind of well, but I mean, they'll they'll insert new evils, be it you know, right? Stalin, but it, is it is that why or? Uh, you know, Islamo-fascism, the term which they identified. Sure. Which but they it, coined, in a sense. It's, I wonder if it's, that's why you sometimes get, or you, you often get these comparisons between, like, Saddam Hussein and Hitler, or it, well, Ayatollah exactly. Khamenei and Hitler, which don't make any sense if in a, in a, you know, if you think about it for five seconds, but it's, it's rhetorically where they keep going. Well, exactly. And, and it, and what it does is it triggers certain emotional responses, particularly those of us who grew up in the wake of World War II, you know, baby boomers and so on. I mean, we know that Hitler and Nazism was evil. So if you can substitute uh, Saddam Hussein for Adolf Hitler or Ayatollah Khamenei for Adolf Hitler, uh, that is definitely an emotional appeal that has a certain resonance for certain people of certain ages. Um, the the last point I would make, which is important, because sometimes it it results in in some a split within neoconservatism, um, is that um, democracy and liberal values generally are are desirable, um, but ultimately it depends uh, on who wins in a democratic system. Uh, because if they don't like the winner, 
then, uh, and particularly if the winner is somehow identified with or allied with a power that is challenging U.S. hegemony or uh, Israel in any respect, if such a winner uh, wins, then uh, whatever government they head or involved with becomes easily identified with evil, and then they kind of lose their their <laughs> their democratic cred uh, with neocons and their their orphans, <laughs> if you will, it's at the- least by the neocons. And a perfect example of this would be is quite recent. Um, in two thousand nine, you'll remember. Um, there was a, essentially a coup d'etat in Honduras, um, a country that, whose strategic value is somewhat questionable, but which nonetheless, because of its, because of the 1980s and neocons were heavily, heavily involved and empowered during the 1980s under Reagan, particularly as regards Central America, Honduras has become very important in their eyes. In any event, um, there was essentially a coup d'etat in 2009, and neocons, insofar as they were paying attention at the time, all rallied in support of the new government, even though it had been installed illegally and by the Honduran military, um, which suggested that democracy was not very was not a very important criterion after all, at least as far as Honduras was concerned, and their fear was that Honduras would be allied with Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, an old bete noir, and with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, who had become a bete noir primarily because he was increasingly outspoken against Israel and was taking diplomatic measures against Israel. Um, Then now in, in uh, and so at the time, uh, people like uh, Otto Reich, who is a neoconservative at American Enterprise Institute, among others, Elliot Abrams, who was Assistant Secretary for Inter-American Affairs in the 1980s, a staunch anti-Sandinista, um, and who is at the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, and who also, you know, was important in Middle East policy under the George W. Bush administration. They all tried to depict this coup as a non-coup, claiming that the incumbent president had overreached by trying, or at least exploring the possibility of seeking a second term, presumably in violation of the Honduran constitution. And that's what triggered the coup, and that the army well, maybe they shouldn't have expelled him from the country in the middle of the night while he was in his pajamas, but the coup really wasn't a coup. It was really a triumph of democratic procedure. Now, eight years later, is it eight years? No, it's almost nine years. He had last week, you know, the installation of a new president in, or not a new president in Honduras, right, an old president of Honduras, who was in his second term, arguably in violation of the constitution, but whose politics are quite right-wing, very pro-Israel, Honduras voted who, with the United States. Who, who won in a very dubious <laughs> election. <laughs> that, yeah, you know, there was condemning a question Jerusalem. About. And according to all international observers, won the election through highly dubious means, which was probably actually won 
by the left-wing candidate or the you know the center-left candidate. So what do the how do the neocons react? Absolute silence. <laughs> <laughs> they have nothing to say about this. Well, and, and they were so committed to a democratic Honduras. Uh, uh, in 2009, they somehow have lost their their fervor, you know, the, nearly a decade later. Well, that's very typical of their attitude toward democracy and liberal values, which is, yeah, the, the, if, if, if democracy serves the interests right. of the United States and Israel and their greater battle against evil in the world, then it's a great thing. The if example it I actually serve the interests of said countries and the battle against evil around the world as they conceive it, then it's not so important. Right. Like the example I actually thought you were going to cite was the uh, the 2006 elections in Palestine that had been the result of years of American pressure on the Palestinians, and then Hamas won the elections, and it was like, okay, you know, we don't recognize your government anymore. Right. I mean, they literally turned on a dime when the, the wrong party won the vote. Well, when you talk about human rights and democracy, insofar as it should apply to the Palestinians, neoconservatives feel really bad for the Palestinians, and they'd really like to help, but they really aren't ready for any of that. <laughs> but that goes to the core which is important because I've had lots of discussions with people. To many people, neoconservatism is just simply those who favor absolute U.S. hegemony and the right of the U.S. to intervene anywhere it wants with military power in order to achieve regime change or any other political outcome that's, that furthers U.S. interests because of U.S. exceptionalism and so on. And the issue is, is Israel part of that? Um, is Israel exceptional too? Is neoconservatism very much focused on the welfare and security of Israel? And I argue that is a core principle of neoconservatives. There is no neoconservative that I'm aware of who does not accept that as a principle. Um, but some people who study neoconservatism say, well, Israel is very important, but it's not a core principle. And the only person who could be defined as a neoconservative and who is prominent, who actually speaks, has spoken out about Palestinian rights from a kind of liberal perspective is uh, Paul Wolfowitz. I can't think who used to be deputy uh, defense secretary. Right. I can't think of anyone else. I think he's the only exception who essentially proves the rule. When it comes to Palestinians, particularly because of the intimate relationship they have with Israel and its welfare long term, when it comes to Israel, their belief in democracy and liberal values just isn't present. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it is. It is the double standard uh, with neoconservatives. But that double standard, as noted above or before, extends as well to Honduras and to other countries when, when, when they feel the need. So 
in terms of looking at neoconservatism and defining it dis as distinct from, um, you know, as you say, liberal internationalism or from, um, you know, the, the, the hawkish right wing view. I know, I mean, because I know one, one of your, uh, uh, things is when people define John Bolton as a neoconservative and you're, you're always very adamant that he's not a neoconservative. And, you know, I think this is where people get into some gray areas. Like there are other, uh, you know, distinct schools of, you know, or approaches to foreign policy that can often get you to the same places as neoconservatives, neoconservatism, but maybe not quite you know, for the same reasons or in the same way. And if you could talk a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, well, I think liberal interventionists, people like the Clintons, um, accept very much the notion of U.S. hegemony and U.S. exceptionalism and the importance of retaining same. And they're also inclined to see the world in more or less Manichaean Ways so, like they sh what they share with the neoconservatives is a, is a, is first of all a rhetorical belief in liberal values and democracy, and they share with them uh, a, a view of the world that that is fundamentally moral, if not Manichaean. That is, they they usually don't emphasize so much, or they're not as extreme in their Manichaean uh, worldview as neocons are, but they they really do see evil in the world as something to be defeated. And they believe strongly in the moral exceptionalism of the United States in particular, not necessarily Israel, although I think there are many uh, uh, liberal interventionists who also accept Israel as being a morally exceptional state, particularly in the wake of the Holocaust. Um, so they're, they're willing to give many more allowances to Israel than, say, foreign policy realists are. And, and in, I mean, in all of that, they, they overlap to a considerable extent with neoconservatives. Where they differ is neoconservatives believe strongly in military power as being, if they, they wouldn't say it rhetorically, but, but I think in their heart of hearts they believe it. Military power is the be all and end all of, of power itself. And they distrust to some extent soft power um, uh, they are much, neocons generally are more militaristic, therefore, in their worldview than uh, liberal interventionists. But the biggest difference is that liberal interventionists are much more skeptical of unilateral action by the United States, and they much prefer multilateral um, approaches to international challenges, uh, as well as diplomatic solutions over military solutions. And I think that's a very considerable 
difference in their point of view. The uh, because let's put it this way: because the United States is a morally exceptional actor on the world stage, many neocons believe that it's almost immoral for the United States to expend enormous amounts of capital and effort to appease international opinion uh, or to appease other states. Um, because by, ne by definition, the United States is the most moral state and any effort to subordinate U.S. power to, say, institutions like the United Nations Security Council, uh, in which Russia and China have, a, have veto power, um, that itself is, is an immoral action. So they have no problem about unilateral action, whereas liberal internationalists seek multilateral action. They seek multilateral sanction. They show re some respect, at least, to the UN Security Council, although obviously in the case of Libya, um, they showed very little respect to the UN Security Council uh, in the end. And same with uh, Kosovo, when they resorted to NATO instead of the UN Security Council. Um, but that's still a very big difference in terms of how you see the world. If, if, if you see yourself as uniquely moral, then any acting in concert or with the permission of other states is, uh, is, moral, is, is morally dubious. Um, just because it dilutes the, 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 the greatness, the great goodness of the United States. The essence. So, so I think that's, those are the main differences between liberal internationalists and, ne and neoconservatives, but they have been allied, very closely allied at various times in modern, in recent history. Um, the Balkan Wars is an excellent example of where neoconservatives were actively engaged within the Republican Party um, because uh, trying to persuade the Republican Party not to turn its back on, uh, on internationalism, post-World War II internationalism, to remain engaged with the world. In, the, in fact, the, the project for the New American Century, which was a neoconservative initiative, created in 1997, came out of a, an, an article co-authored by Bill Kristol and Bob Kagan, very important neoconservative uh, thinkers, um, that appeared in Foreign Affairs. And that, that was an argument directed at fellow Republicans saying, you guys are going off in an isolationist and nationalist direction post-Cold War, and that's a terrible error. We must remain internationally engaged. And they argued for uh, uh, the United States to play the role of, to, to exercise, quote, benign hegemony, unquote, over the world system, over the globe, essentially, 
was what they were talking about. And out of that comes the project for the new American century. And out of that eventually comes the decision uh, to invade Iraq, of course. But during the Balkan Wars, liberal internationalists and neoconservatives were closely allied uh, in part because of a kind of common antipathy toward Russia, which is another kind of basic principle of neoconservatism. If not antipathy, then at least distrust on the part of the liberal internationalists. And a belief that the United States had a special mission to spread democratic rule and self-determination uh, um, uh, you know, around the world, particularly in areas of strategic interest, which on the fringes of Eurasia. Um, and I, uh, people have to remember that uh, neocons have been very agile in terms of their alliances. So they will ally with liberal internationalists if they think that the Republican Party in particular is moving in what an isolationist direction. Remember it. Um, or at least a, a, a nationalist direction that's very divisive. Um, uh, remember when we were talking about the 30s and how they used the 30s as a kind of lodestar. Well, the greatest threat, uh, or, or let's put it this way, one of the, they attribute one of the important reasons for uh, Hitler's rise was not only kind of Munich and the timidity of France and the, and England in confronting Hitler, but they also blame isol American isolationism and believe that if Americans had been much more involved in the European system at that time, Hitler would not have risen. There might not have been a World War II. There might not have been a Holocaust. And they think that one of the great enemies they're constantly fighting is isolationism. And from the late 60s until the, well, right through the 90s, they, they believe that the greatest threat or that isolationism was, was a key factor in, uh, among, in the Democratic Party. But in the 90s, in the post-Cold War era, uh, they they believe they came to believe that isolationism was a greater threat within the Republican Party, and now I mean that explains a lot of their ambivalence uh, and dislike of uh, of Trump because they believe that Trump may harbor isolationist views. They hated Steve Bannon for that reason. I want to yeah and I want to talk generally about ambivalent Trump. In a, because it, it seems like they've kind of come around. I mean, it seems like they're, they've gone from feeling like in the primary that, that Trump was uh, kind of crowding them out of the Republican Party to a, to a place where, uh, in many ways, the neocons are sort of directing his foreign policy at this point. But I wanted to ask um, if you could talk about... Um, well, first to 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 take the to look at the other end of this and to talk about, uh, you know, the, what distinguishes neocons from from the Bolton types, which I I think is mostly about you know the sort of reverence for ideals like human rights and and liberal democracy. But but if you could say a few words about that. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, Bolton, Bolton comes out of um, Jesse Helms's office. And um, I mean, he comes he comes from a, a quite a right wing background, whereas neoconservatives, at least the first generation of neoconservatives came out of the left. In fact, they were Trotskyites. Um, they at least that's kind of where they got their start and where they got some of their methods, it seems to me. Um, but Bolton has always been on the far right in this country. Now, he's traveled a good deal. If you look at his evolution at the beginning, I don't think he really cared that much about Israel, for example. But now he's he's totally with Likud in Israel, I think in part because he sees the Likud and the people right of Likud as a kind of um, uh, champions of the kind of nationalism uh, and of military power that he himself uh, believes in. But, and, and also the fact that he's based at American Enterprise Institute, which is, you know, probably the most neoconservative in orientation of any of the important think tanks in Washington. He's come to accept um, a, a lot of, of neoconservative ideology, um, as did, for example, Dick Cheney, who also comes from the right, though not as necessarily as far right as, as Bolton himself. But he has like nothing but contempt for the United Nations, nothing but contempt for the European Union. He believes, I think, in to some extent, in the kind of nationalism that um, that Bannon uh, is champions. Um, I mean, but he he's just from the far right, um, which is a different which is a different tradition. Okay. Um, and and uh, uh, I, I, largely for that reason, even though he, he has pretty much adopted a neoconservative ideology, I don't really consider him a neoconservative. His background is just way too different. And I don't think he has much use for, for the kind, um, for the, liberal values um, and democratic rhetoric that neocons use, even if the latter use them mainly for opportunistic purposes. I, I, I don't think he's ever kind of disguised his, his contempt for, uh, for human rights and, and, and other considerations. And I think he sees the world not in, man, in particularly Manichaean terms. In that respect, he may be something more of a realist. He believes it is a constant struggle for power on the part of various states. And he just wants the United States to dominate right. that struggle okay. and feels it's absolutely necessary for do, to do so. I think neocons generally are are very influenced by their own sense of, of what is good and evil. And I think that's a big difference. Okay. So you, you started down this road, actually, uh, talking about 
the origins of the neoconservative movement in the sort of anti-Stalin left of the 1930s and 1940s and the Trotskyites. I wonder if you could, uh, you know, kind of talk about the whole milieu from which they emerged, which is, you know, the Trotskyites, there's contributions from uh, Leo Strauss at the University of Chicago. In the 1960s, you have this sort of uh, hawkish left that that morphs into, you know, kind of morphs into neoconservatism. Like, just to kind of make sense of this wide sweep of, of you know, the background of, of where this movement came from. Well, um, I don't profess to, to, to know and, and more importantly to understand, you know, exactly the very early history or, or the prehistory of neoconservatism in part because, um, because I was brought up on the West Coast and it was mainly an East Coast phenomenon, <laughs> uh, particularly a New York City phenomenon. Um, uh, and, and I should stress, I mean, right off the top, um, um, you know, people often say, well, especially neoconservatives when they're feeling defensive, um, they say, well, when people use the, the word neocon, that's just a synonym for Jews. Um, I, I think that's ridiculous, but I think we probably need to address that issue. Um, most neoconservatives are Jewish, and that kind of explains the uh, obsession, obsession or the centrality of Israel in their worldview. But most Jews are not neoconservative, um, because when you ask American Jews about issues having to do with like a two-state solution and Israel-Palestine, particularly, or the use of military power, they're, they're very much uh, in a different uh, uh, in a different place, uh, particularly on questions of like military power, uh, Jews do not seem, by and large, in this country, do not seem really enthusiastic. They also overall favor, for example, a two-state solution and rights for the Palestinians, uh, whereas neoconservatives. Um, uh, are, are, are at this point much more closely identified with the Likud party uh, than with the Labour Party or any of the parties in the uh, center-left or left part of the Israel, diminishing left part of the Israeli political spectrum. So I think we should start with that and say that, you know, people say neoconservatism got its start at the City College of New York with Irving Kristol, although he wasn't there, but uh, Norman Podhoretz, the editor of, long, long time editor of Commentary magazine, which was produced by the American Jewish community and, and which essentially became the, the, the breeding ground, the, the journal of, of neoconservatism through the 60s, 70s, 80s, even, even today. Uh, becoming ever more hardline, ever moving ever more to the right, especially on issues dealing with Israel. But um, again, because I, I'm not New York from New York, <laughs> and I wasn't, and my my parents came were were Jews from Germany, um, and not from Eastern Europe, where 
the 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 you know where where Jews were very very important in the evolution of communist parties with Trotskyite split offs. I was never exposed to any of that. For that, you should probably talk to Jacob Heilbrunn or or other people who are really steeped in in those ideological fights on the left um, that started in in Eastern Europe in the twenties and thirties. What I can say is that neoconservatism as a as an influential national movement affecting in particular uh, sectors of the Jewish community began in the in the late 60s. And the most important figure in that respect, I think, is Norman Pajoritz, because when he first became editor of commentary, it was quite firmly. Uh, implanted in 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 the left uh, in this country, um, but uh, he began to move it to the right, and the I would say the turning point takes place in sixty seven, sixty eight, sixty nine, due to a number of events, international and national, and I don't know how detailed you want to get into that, but. These events included, of course, uh, reactions to the Vietnam War, and neoconservatives were very worried for a number of reasons about the impact of the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement in this country. The, on the, in terms of the impact of the Vietnam War, uh, there was great concern that if the United States didn't prevail... Uh, or show that it was willing to sacrifice an enormous amount to maintain its influence and power in Southeast Asia, that somehow Israel itself could be made vulnerable. Um, That was one impact of the war. A second impact of the war that isn't really talked about today at all, but if you go back to issues of commentary back then, it comes up, and that is the... Um, Jews, young Jews were very prominent in both the anti-war movement and the countercultural movement of the time. And there was real concern among older members of the Jewish community that this could trigger an anti-Semitic reaction on the part of the broader American population that uh, uh, the visibility of Jews in the anti-war movement or the yippies in in particular um, uh, could spark uh, a a, a serious reaction. And they were very worried about that and thought it was very important for Jews to show their patriotism to the United States in the face of of what they saw as a threat at the time. Um, uh, related to that was the whole countercultural movement, again, in which a lot of younger Jews were involved and even played leadership roles. And there was real concern about um, the counterculture itself and the values that it propagated, not so much about free love, but that it was a, a romantic and anti-intellectual movement. And they, uh, many important intellectual Jews, saw this as um, an attack on 
on their own way, of, uh, <laughs> on their own formation, um, in a sense, on their own identity. Um, after all, Jews had risen both in Europe and the United States when in kind of the age of reason, during the age of reason, when scientific uh, um, uh, exploration and rationality uh, and um, uh, kind of uh, permitted this, this uh, well, I, I guess this success on the part of Jews in their attempts to assimilate and rise in general European culture. Remember, Jews were emancipated in most, or a good part of Western Europe, most of Western Europe, uh, during the Napoleonic conquests. And, and once emancipated, they rose very, very fast in Europe, in most European societies, um, because they believed in education, because they were good at languages, they were excellent as, with science, Growing, they were very good uh, empiricists, um, and it was it was essentially the age of reason. But here, suddenly, you have this this reaction in the form of a counterculture movement, which questioned these values, and it reminded them of the kind of romanticism uh, that devolved into nationalism and, and great anti-Semitism in the late 1800s in, in central Europe in particular, but Europe more broadly. And that, that was a big concern. They, and they themselves, I mean, Jewish intellectuals in the anti-war period in universities around the country, um, believe that, uh, um, uh, uh, rational thinking um, was uh, kind of the key to human progress. And they saw this countercultural uh, revolution taking place within the youth as very deeply opposed to that, and they felt threatened by that. Another thing, phenomenon that happened in the late 60s, of course, was the rise of the Black Power Movement. And this was very important also to leaders in the Jewish community, because for, for years, even decades, the civil rights movement in this country, uh, that Jews had played a very, very prominent uh, role and, and courageous role in promoting the rights of African-Americans. And all of a sudden, or not so suddenly, you have the rise of a black power movement, which distinct not only distinguishes, in a sense, the interests of, of African-American rights in, say, gaining admission to universities, in jobs, in housing, and so on, but also in some urban centers is pretty explicitly, at least insofar as, as many Jews were concerned, anti-Semitic. That is, they were, they were noting that Jews appeared to be disproportionately represented in, in landlords in big urban centers, particularly in the Northeast and particularly in New York, and were, in their view, disproportionately uh, 
susceptible to slumlordism and so on. And you have uh, essentially a generation of African-American leaders who had worked so closely with Jews over decades uh, to promote equal rights suddenly turning on them in their view. And that created uh, a, a severe reaction within the Jewish community that became at that point uh, more hostile for, or actually somewhat hostile for the first time to African-American struggles. And I mean, one subset of that, which is really important, is the demand by black power advocates for like quotas at universities, um, because <clears throat> not only did that threaten Jewish admissions to universities, but Jews were reminded that Jews were themselves victims of quotas in the 1930s and 40s at, at important schools like Columbia and Yale and Harvard. And their whole struggle had been to eliminate quotas and now African-Americans who used to be their comrades in arms were demanding quotas for African-Americans. And they saw this as a huge reversal and a huge betrayal of, of their own struggle and of the, the whole concept of integration and, um, and uh, equal rights. So that was another kind of big shock to the system. And finally, I'm not addressing these in chronological order, obviously, was the 1967 Arab-Israeli conflict, the war. Um, until that time, is by and large, American Jews were not particularly Zionist in their orientation. I mean, they were sympathetic to Israel, they bought trees, to, to plant in Israel at their congregation, through their congregations and United Jewish Appeal and so on. But they were not committed Zionists. But all of a sudden, Israel, in their view, had been attacked against people who were threatening to throw the Jews into the sea. And there was this sense of extreme vulnerability that happened over like a three-week period uh, up to the war and up to the first couple of days of the war. Uh, and then it resulted in what they saw, what many saw as a miracle, which was Israel not only defeated um, or, de or succeeded in defending itself against these Arab countries or governments that had, in had invaded it, but had actually conquered territory. That was a huge deal in terms of Jewish identity because for years and years, Jews had seen themselves somewhat as victims uh, and justifiably so. There wasn't that much Holocaust consciousness at the time, although it was on the rise uh, during the 1960s um, in American culture. But um, uh, it, 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 seeing themselves as victims and then suddenly seeing Israelis as, as, as warriors, uh, warriors who, def who could overcome incredible odds 
and and win 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 as donald trump might say that was a whole new view uh i mean just that that really affected uh the feeling the deep feelings and identity of jews throughout the world but particularly in the united states i mean i myself remember that the war very vividly and feeling very proud that you know i that i and moshe dayan were somehow connected as jews and um that that had a huge impact and what it did was it turned the american jewish community from being pretty indifferent to zionism and and israel more specifically to being uh wildly partisan <laughs> Uh, and and much more Zionist in orientation than they ever had been before. And that also will propel neoconservatism. Neoconservatism will, will use that and was very, very, uh, was very bolstered by that. So by the early 70s, you actually can speak of a movement that was neoconservative in orientation uh, and that's been with us as part of the political uh, um, landscape ever since with uh, both rising and then falling and rising again in influence in terms of national policy. Well, so, yeah, that, I mean, that leads into, um, you know, where I think will be our, you know, where we'll, we'll end this, uh, which is, um, you know, I, I wonder if you could help explain the rise to prominence of, of neoconservatives within the Republican Party in the 21st century. I mean, the course of, of the history is you have the Reagan administration where they, you know, start to you know rise into positions of, of genuine influence within the foreign policy community. But then under H.W. Bush and especially under Clinton, that influence wanes. So I guess what I'm asking is, you know, how do you explain the sort of comeback on steroids that they experienced under the, the George W. Bush administration? And then if you could talk about what you see happening, um, you know, in the Trump administration where, you know, uh, he seemed at times in the Republican primary to be running against almost neoconservatism. But now he's basically implementing, especially with regards to Iran, uh, a very and and with Israel-Palestine, he's implementing a very uh, neoconservative kind of playbook. During the Reagan administration, they were highly influential in the first term, but um, with the departure of Gene Kirkpatrick after the first term. Um, and the increasing uh, dominance of U.S. foreign policy under then Secretary of State George Shultz, you find that their influence wanes somewhat, at least outside the Middle East. Um, and so by the end of the Reagan term, you know, George Shultz had set up the, or kind of laid the groundwork for recognition of the PLO, which was anathema to neoconservatives. Um, 
but yeah, they're, 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 they, they exercise much more influence in the first term than in the second term. And the well, so is there, I mean, did something happen? Is it just Schultz's influence or, you know, did they lose, they somehow lost their, you know, inner connection with Reagan or something like what, what explains the difference? Well, I think, yeah, in, in part, it's the influence of Schultz, although Schultz also protected them. I mean, he protected, for example, Elliot Abrams and pretty much let Elliot Abrams do what he wanted to do uh, in Latin America. Um, but, um, but actually, you know, um, Abrams himself, I mean, I, I, I really have enormous contempt for Abrams. But in, 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 in looking at, and of course, you know, he was uh, uh, an admitted, uh, you know, he, 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 he violated um, U.S. law, among well, other things. Right, I mean, in Iran-Contra. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where I was going. Like, how much of a role did that scandal breaking open impact, you know, the, the influence of these folks in, in the administration? Um, I don't think it influenced them all that much, except it, it resulted in the decline of Reagan's own influence um, uh, and the assertion by the Democratic majority in Congress of greater influence, certainly with respect to Central America, that was true. Um, the, the weakening of Reagan necessarily weakened uh, arising from Iran Contra necessarily weakened them. Although Schultz himself enjoyed, you know, immense power and uh, respect throughout. Um, I, I would say uh, another alienating factor for neocons, or or what got between neocons in the administration and Reagan, was the rise of Gorbachev. And, uh, and Maggie Thatcher's influence over Reagan in persuading him to see Gorbachev as a, um, as a really historic figure whose presence needed to be taken uh, maximum advantage of. Um, neocons were very anti-Soviet and they were still saying up to like 19, up to the fall of the wall, in 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 East Germany, they were still warning that Gorbachev was a trick, <laughs> and uh, I mean the uh, anti-Russian nature of neoconservatism may actually be a core principle. It's just that I don't know enough about the the history of um, Russian of U.S. relations with Russia to know to to confidently assert that that is a core principle. But they were very, very distrustful of the Soviet Union after, even after Gorbachev had forged, um, you know, very useful, very friendly ties with Reagan. Uh, and they began entering into a series of arms control agreements that the neocons, both within the administration and outside the administration, strongly opposed. So but is that, also, in that sense then, I mean, could you say that the decline in influence under H.W. Bush is just a continuation then because you have the Cold War ending and this, uh, you know, move toward closer 
U.S. Soviet and then Russian relations. I mean, well, is that well? They were they were expelled from the administration under George H.W. Bush. I mean, they they had virtually no influence whatsoever under George H.W. Bush. I mean, he got rid of Elliot Abrams immediately. Um, Richard Pearl never had a chance under George H.W. Bush of of sticking of well he had resigned I think a year earlier because he could see the writing on the wall between Gorbachev and Reagan um, and as much as he tried to push against any kind of detente or rapprochement uh, he he was powerless to do anything against Schultz to do any well he had some influence but through Weinberger but but Schultz prevailed. And Schultz set up, as I said before, the recognition of the PLO, which which then George H.W. Bush consummated. Um, so George H.W. Bush had no patience for neoconservatives, and they found the door very much closed to them when when he took power. Under George W. Bush, again, they reasserted influence. They, you know, the project for the new American century that I talked about earlier was created in 1997. If you look at the original signatories of their founding charter, you'll see that uh, virtually every major foreign policy figure in, in W's first term signed the document. And uh, uh, once Rumsfeld and Cheney were in place under under Bush, I mean, they just invited uh, uh, everybody, almost right. everyone <laughs> in the neoconservative movement in Washington, D.C. to join them in well, senior positions. And so they found themselves with absolutely unprecedented influence, which lasted I, their decline starts roughly at the end of the summer, the beginning of the fall of 2003, when it becomes clear that they had no clue as to how to how to run the occupation of Iraq, <laughs> and things were falling apart, and there was an insurgency that was serious and that was killing Americans every day, and. I mean, they at that point, they had very little credibility within the administration, although it took another another year and and a half before the the major figures left the administration. How important is is Cheney in this? Because, of course, he was H.W.'s secretary of defense. Did he go through some kind of personal change between that that? administration and becoming vice president in uh, W's administration where he kind of becomes an enabler of these guys well that's what some of his his his, his uh, former colleagues and, and close friends believe I mean Brent Scowcroft said you know Dick Cheney isn't today is not the Dick Cheney I knew when I was working with with him previously some people attribute it to his his heart attack, and some people attribute it to the trauma of nine eleven. And um, but I, but I I don't have any particular insight into that. You'd have to rely on them for their psychological analysis. But a lot but of I mean, those people were already. I mean, nine eleven seems like it's an insufficient explanation because a lot of these people, personnel wise, were in place 
from the start of the administration. Like, they didn't all come on after 9-11. Wolfowitz was there, and, you know, he just had... I mean, the, the people were already in the administration. No, I... No, I, I agree with that. I mean, he may just have hardened his views over time. He was a board member of American Enterprise Institute. I even think he had an office at American Enterprise Institute. And that was really the 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 seedbed of the Iraq invasion. I mean, the, no other think tank or extra governmental organization contributed so much to such a total disaster. As American Enterprise Institute and Cheney and his wife also, you know, had joined, had 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 a formal association with the institute before he became vice president. So he may his he may have just evolved out of hatred of of the Clintons or I you know who knows. But on the other hand, I don't think you know like Bolton. I mean, he's not, I don't think he was as extreme as Bolton, although I think they probably intersected at some point ideologically. Um, but like Bolton, I don't think he himself, I think he's much more of a nationalist than a neoconservative. And he did not, um, I don't think he had a, a special place in his heart for Israel, particularly. I think that was just convenient. You asked a little while ago, how is it? Oh, and and now under Trump, you know, they have they have some influence certainly on on Israel policy because Netanyahu is getting almost everything he wants, short of war with Iran, and that could yet come. Um, uh, how it is that their influence has persisted, particularly after the Iraq War, which was such a catastrophe. Um, and I think one reason of that is is to look at Trump and see his own evolution. If if you could believe that Trump has evolves in a straight line, <laughs> as opposed to constantly contradicting himself. But I mean, you know, a year and a half ago, he was talking about how he wanted to be, you know, fair to both Israelis and Palestinians and. Uh, you know, he, he he questioned why we would give so much to Israel and so on, and then and then he changed. And now, as I said, Netanyahu is is getting everything he wants. Well, of course, the biggest donor to Trump's campaign was Sheldon Adelson, and um, Sheldon Adelson is very very close to Netanyahu and is back Netanyahu and is back people to the right of Netanyahu. And he and his wife were very, very big campaign donors. And if you, I wrote an article or a piece for the blog on this. If you trace the evolution of Trump's remarks, you'll see that there were a lot of private discussions between Gerald uh, uh, Kushner and um, and Ron Dermer, the U.S., uh, the Israeli ambassador to the United States, who's very, very close, who's also a political advisor to Bibi, to Netanyahu. There are a series of discussions in the spring of 2016, and all of a sudden, Trump is talking a whole different line. I mean, in, in September of 2015, he was telling Adelson, 
that he didn't want his money. He was attacking Rubio as saying that 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 Rubio was uh, Adelson's uh, little puppet. Uh, and he, I mean, he attacked Jeb for changes. for his brother's administration. I mean, he attacked Jeb for basically the entire sweep of W's foreign policy. I mean, yeah, it was it was very stark yeah. to watch. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, he attacked you know the invasion of Iraq as the worst thing ever and uh, a complete disaster, and which is correct. Um, and then he, and then his tune changes in the spring of 2016, just. You know, after strong showings in the primaries, and Adelson clearly puts his money with with Trump, and probably without that money, which was substantial in the tens of millions, uh, there's a good chance Trump would not have won the election. Um, and if you look at again the campaign finance activities of well-known. Neo, neoconservatives, well, you take somebody like Paul Singer, who had financed the investigation of Trump by uh, by that firm that's now so much in the, by Fusion, what is it called? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what is it? Fusion GPS or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the original financier of the organization by the Washington Beacon uh, was Paul Singer, who's a right-wing Zionist of fairly extreme dimensions. And he he gave a million dollars for Trump's inauguration and apparently has enjoyed access since. Or you look at Bernard Marcus, who was the founder of Home Depot. He's the second biggest donor to Trump. And he is a Likudist par excellence. Uh, neo, I mean, to the extent now that uh, the Likud party worldview corresponds to hardline neoconservative worldview, I mean, there's there's quite a correlation. So three really important donors to the Republican Party and two of them to Trump directly or to, to the Trump campaign directly are very, very wealthy uh, uh, neoconservatives. And I think that is an explanation for, um, Trump's, uh, you know, uh, poli radical policy changes vis-a-vis -vis Israel, Palestine in particular, right. and the Middle East more generally. I mean, I'm sure Kushner exercises some influence and Kushner's family has supported settlements even if it has historically supported Democrats, but they're still very, you know, ultra Zionist in their in their views, um, and I think that that influences Trump, and that partly explains um, their rise or their 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 new rise, renewed rise on, under Trump. Nikki Haley, Adelson uh, provided money to. Nikki Haley's pack in order to prevent Republican challengers or Republican candidates from challenging her for governor and uh, in order to get her uh, get elected at the state level uh, lawmakers who uh, who would work with with Haley so Haley owes Adelson a lot um, 
I think I think she's an avenue for for neoconservative influence. Pence, as a Christian Zionist, is not a neoconservative because he's a Christian Zionist. But Christian Zionists have more or less, at at key times, especially with respect to Israel, they've outsourced their foreign policy to neoconservatives right. to their pro-Israel foreign policy to neoconservatives. They're there are a number of ways that neoconservatives have found sympathetic voices in uh, in the Trump administration, and I have no doubt that they've used them. But as to their persistence, particularly after the Iraq war, which was such a disaster, I, again, I think it's due to people like Adelson, although Adelson's pretty unique. Um, but the, the fact is that neoconservatives have been very, very well endowed by a small number of, uh, of mainly Jewish neoconservatives. And uh, the amount of money that's gone into sustaining their message uh, has been considerable. And I think that's why they remain very important. That's one of the reasons why they remain very important participants in the foreign policy debate in Washington, D.C., and have not been kind of expelled over the catastrophe in Iraq. Um, and it's it's not just, I guess, you know, backing candidates. It's supporting think tanks. It's supporting AEI. It's supporting Foundation uh, for the in, Defense of Democracies. And especially for an administration like this one that's kind of gutting its, <laughs> its civil servant base. Uh, you know, when they have to turn somewhere for policy ideas, they there's no place to go but one of these shops that's getting, you know, money from people like Singer and Adelson that, that you know, supports these these policies. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's absolutely the case. It's not the only case. I mean, neoconservatives have been very agile in terms of forming alliances with different sectors of the foreign policy establishment, whether it's liberal internationalists during the Clinton period in the 90s, or it's far right type nationalists like Bolton in the early, and, and Cheney maybe, in the early years of the W administration, uh, or whether it's uh, just, um, uh, 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 Islamo, uh, Islamophobes in right. the Trump administration. Yeah. I mean, and, and I should stress, neoconservatism is not a monolithic ideology. I mean, the core elements that I talked about at the very beginning of the interview remain the case, but there are big differences um, uh, among neoconservatives on some important issues, like how seriously do you take democratic rule? Uh, Egypt is the best example of that. You have a split between the far right, which uh, are, is fundamentally and deeply Islamophobic, and then more liberal sectors among neoconservatives like Bob, uh, Bob Kagan, who think that uh, supporting authoritarian rulers like General Sisi in Egypt is, will, will be uh, disastrous in the long term for U.S. and Israeli interests. Um, so there, there is a spectrum of opinion, but those that are on the harder right 
people like Frank Gaffney, um, Daniel Pipes, and so on, they do have, well, Daniel Pipes doesn't, but Gaffney appears to have an entree into the administration because of his Islamophobic views right. uh, and, 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 and very, very hardline pro-Israel views. Um, so, so, I mean, they are a pretty, quite a permanent factor in, in American foreign policy, and I don't see them going away anytime soon. <laughs> well, on that cheery note, <laughs> we should probably end this before... Uh, my dogs are going to start barking. They start barking every every evening around this time. So okay, okay. <laughs> so well, I'm sorry get that I on the recording. such long and convoluted answers. No, I, I think this was great. I mean, there's a lot of history there that I don't think people would know about uh, that that you've uh, talked about, and I think it'll be very interesting for people to listen to. So thank I hope you. So. All right. Well, we can do it again sometime if you think it's worthwhile. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> definitely. You're uh, you're my first guest, and we'll definitely have you back. <laughs> and hopefully not the last. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not the last, yeah, but, you know, definitely okay, have Eric. you back. Thanks, Jim. Okay, we'll be in touch. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, so I hope everybody enjoyed that. Uh, I hope it was enlightening for people. Uh, I think Jim really delved into the history of neoconservatism in a way that uh, brought in a lot of very interesting aspects of European and 20th century American history, uh, things that I would not have even imagined or thought to bring into the discussion. Uh, so I hope you all enjoyed that, and I want to thank Jim Loeb again. Uh, his website is loblog.com, L-O-B-E-L-O-G. Com. I'll have a link to it in the uh, description to this podcast. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week to talk about the Kurds or, you know, if something else comes up uh, to talk about that. Um, but, um, you know, have a good weekend, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.